Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to help us this morning so that we do not forget your law and so that you may continue to deliver us from the evil one. Oh, Lord, we know that we have great enemies in this world. But, Lord, we come and ask for your help this morning. Guide us by your word to strength to strength as we serve you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And, of course, this book, we understand, is about how the monarchy, how the kingship began in Israel. Israel had come out of Egypt many years before under Moses. They'd come into the promised land under Joshua. They'd been led by different judges, but they'd started to ask for a king. They wanted a king to rule over them and to lead them out into battle, to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. And so we see they received the first king of Israel, which is Saul. And then Saul, of course, has shown that he is not someone who serves the Lord with all his heart. And so Samuel the prophet has been led by God to anoint a second king of Israel, and that is David. And we've been watching David rise in Israel. We saw how he rose to the king's court uh, by playing the harp for, uh, for Saul when he was troubled by an evil spirit. And now we've seen him defeat Goliath. And this week, we continue to see that he rises in the eyes of the Israelites by gaining more and more victories in military campaigns that he leads against the Lord's enemies, the Philistines. And we see that in verse 5 of chapter 18. Look with me at chapter 18, verse 5. We read, Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. So that word successful is there. And then down in verse 14, we see it in verse 14 as well. In everything he, that's David, did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And then in verse 30, we read, The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. So over this chapter, we see that uh, David goes from strength to strength. He rises more and more victorious in the eyes of the Israelites as he delivers them from the hand of the enemy, the Philistines. And what is everybody's response to David's successes? Well, they love David. We see this again and again in chapter 18, this word love, this Hebrew word that's translated love in our English translations, comes through as different people express love for David. Firstly, in chapter 18, we see that Jonathan loves David. Jonathan is King Saul's son, so he is the prince of Israel, and he is going to be the one who would be expected to be the next king of Israel to take over the throne from his father. But what do we read of him in verse 1 of chapter 18? After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And then in verse 3, And Jonathan then made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And he even expresses this love by what he does in verse 4. Jonathan then took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Uh, this seems a bit odd. Uh, we don't generally take off our clothes and give it to other people unless you're a young man and your girlfriend is shivering and you give her your jacket. We don't usually uh, give off our clothes to other people. But this is a, a symbolic act 
which is probably inferring that he was recognising that David should have the throne instead of him, that David should be the one who succeeds to the throne after Saul, that he recognised that David is the one who is a rightful king of Israel. And it's not just Jonathan who loves David. We see that the women of the towns love David. When, they come, when the men return, from, uh, return home in verse 6, after they've had this great military campaign where for 40 days this giant came out and, and threatened them. Uh, so, of course, all the, the people are excited when uh, the men return home from battle in verse 6. And what do they do? They come out, the women come out, and from all the towns of Israel, we read in verse 6, to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. They love David. They recognise that he is the one who gives great victory. And it's not just the women of Israel who exalt David, who love David. We read in verse 16 that all Israel and Judah... So Israel and then Judah is one of the tribes of Israel, which, of course, is uh, where David is descended from. Uh, read in verse 16, But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So we've got Jonathan loves David. We've got the women of Israel love David. We've got all the men of Israel and Judah loving David as well. And not only that, but there's someone else who loves David. And who is that? Not just the prince, but the princess, Michal. We read in verse 20 that she loves David as well. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. And then if you go down to verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. Uh, so here we see an emphasis again on someone loving David, and that is Michal. And of course, God loves David. We see again and again through the passage that God is emphasized as being with David. In verse 12, we read, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. And in verse 14, verse 14, in everything he, that's David, did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And in verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, Again and again, we see these people who are pleased with David, and not only people, but the Lord himself is pleased with David. And so everyone loves David. Everyone, though? Not everyone. What about Saul? Saul doesn't love David. What do we read about Saul in verse 8? Saul was very angry. This refrain that the young women were singing galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. He is not happy. He is angry. He does not love David. And why is that? Well, he's afraid that David will take the kingdom from him. And we read that in verse 8. After um, uh, this refrain galling him, what do we read that he thinks? What more can he, that's David, get but the kingdom? Saul is king, and he wants to remain king. And he's now fearful that David will take his kingdom from him. And are his fears quenched? No, we see throughout the chapter that he gets more and more fearful. In verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. He's mentioned as being afraid in verse 8 and 9. And then in verse 15, we also read, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. And then in verse 29, 
Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Is there any greater fear than that of losing control? Of losing control. You think of, there's a terrible disease called motor neurone disease, where basically you lose control of your extremities and it gradually works in to your core and you lose control of your body. Your body begins to shut down. It's a fearful disease to consider having and to watch someone suffer with as they lose control of their very bodies. It is a great fear that we have where we will lose control of what we have. And if it's something that we fear, as a commoner, imagine a king fearing the loss of the control that he has over his kingdom, over the people who are his subjects. And that is the problem for Saul. Saul is angry, he's fearful, he's jealous because of the loss of control that he suspects David of taking from him, taking that control from him. And so what does he do? Well, he seeks to kill David. He seeks to kill David personally. He does it, tries to do it with a spear in verse 10 and 11. The next day we read in verse uh, 10 of chapter 18, next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. It's a real comment about your musical abilities, isn't it? We fear someone throwing rotten tomato at us as we sing. It's a whole other thing to have a javelin or a spear hurled at you. So he tries personally to kill David. But not only that, after he fails to kill David personally, he tries to have the Philistines kill David. We see that in the way that he speaks about uh, David and uh, his daughter Merab, his oldest daughter. We read in verse 17, Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merab, I will give her to you in marriage, only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. You go out and fight the battles and I will give you my daughter. And why does he do that? Well, we read in the second half of verse 17, for Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. He's failed twice already. Uh, Let the Philistines do it. If I send him out into battle, eventually, odds are he's going to die. And when that doesn't happen, well, he tries to do it again with his other daughter, with Michal. In verse 25, he puts a bride price not of cash, but of Philistine foreskins. Verse 25, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Here we see that Saul is trying to kill David in his fear of loss of the kingdom. But what happens? Well, David doesn't die. And ironically, he actually goes higher in the kingdom as a result of every attempt that Saul makes upon his life. He, um, by sending him out to die at the hand of the Philistines. Sending David out to battle allows David to succeed again and again in battle. And so the Israelites see David is indeed a mighty warrior. And not only that, he actually becomes part of the royal family. By sending him out to die at the hand of the Philistines, he not only succeeds in fighting the Philistines, but he also ends up becoming the king's son-in-law, which of course means that he has more connection to the throne and even a greater likelihood of inheriting the throne of Israel. And so Saul's plan fails. And that's what we can see very clearly here this morning, that David surely rises to the throne 
as we read through the book of 1 Samuel and particularly chapter 18 here today. But what lesson is there for us as we look at this together? Well, there's many lessons that we could have. We could have sermons on anger, the dangers of anger, the dangers of jealousy, the dangers of fear of man, which is so clearly portrayed in Saul here, this fear of man that he has. But I think a better lesson for us would be to see how David and Saul point to Jesus and us. A better lesson would be to see how David and Saul point us to Jesus and ourselves. Why? Well, if we look at Christ rightly, if we understand Christ rightly, then all problems with anger and jealousy and fear of man evaporate. And here we see once again, which we've seen a number of times in 1 Samuel, that David proves to be a shadow of Christ so well. David is a wonderful shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we see that? Well, we know that everyone loves Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus. The people of God love Jesus, both men and women, princes and princesses. Why? Because they see his victories. They see his power, and so they love him. And God loves the Lord Jesus. We see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love. And we know the Holy Spirit loves the Lord Jesus as well, coming upon him with great power. But does everyone love Jesus? No, not everyone. Just as David had an enemy in Saul, so many people do get angry at the Lord Jesus and are galled by him and his successors. And why is that? Well, they fear Christ taking over their lives and the lives of others, of becoming king of their lives and the lives that they like to control. And we see this in the New Testament. We see the anger of people towards the Lord Jesus. And we see it where? Well, we see it with the religious leaders particularly. They're the ones who controlled Israel. But they then saw the Lord Jesus and saw his popularity, his ascent in the eyes of the people, and they feared him. They feared his popularity. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, the religious leaders say, if we let Jesus, him, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Sounds like an echo of the kind of thing Saul was thinking. If I let David go on like this, everyone will want him to be the king of Israel. And after Christ's triumphant entry into Israel, uh, into Jerusalem, sorry, uh, in John chapter 12, we read that the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world, the whole world has gone after him. And so what do the religious leaders try to do? As they fear the popularity of the Lord Jesus well, they tried to ruin his reputation firstly. And we saw that in that reading we had from Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, they come to Jesus and they ask him questions. Look with me now at Matthew chapter 22 and you see these different groups coming forward. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to ruin Christ's popularity. Chapter 22, which is found on page 979, we see these different groups. Firstly, in chapter 22, verse 15, we read, Then the Pharisees... So they're the teachers of the law. They're the ones who at the synagogues would teach the Israelites. In verse 15, we see the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. These are people who support King Herod. So they're supportive of the, the king, uh, of, uh, king Herod who has been placed there by the Romans over Israel. And so they have a crack at Jesus asking him questions about taxes. Now, why would they be interested in taxes? Well, if you can get Jesus to tell people to not pay the Roman tax, what will happen? 
the Philistines will take care of Jesus for you. I used to use the word Philistines loosely there, but it's to bring back this link of what Saul was trying to do in chapter 18. I'll get the Philistines to take care of David. Here, they, the religious leaders are thinking, we don't need to put Jesus to death ourselves. What we can do is we can get the Romans to get annoyed with him because he's telling people not to pay tax. And they will take care of our problem with the Lord Jesus. But that fails. And so we read in chapter 22 that the next group of people come forward, verse 23 of chapter 22 of Matthew. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question about the resurrection. And so these are people who deny the resurrection. So if Jesus then supports the Sadducees in their denial of the resurrection, or he affirms the resurrection, he's going to get another group offside. They're wanting to put a tricky question to him so that he can get people offside by his answer. And so then, of course, he will become unpopular, at least with a significant portion within Israel. And the Sadducees, of course, are the people who have great power within Israel. They may not be religious teachers necessarily, but they have great power. They have political contacts. And then that fails. And so what happens next? Well, the Pharisees get together in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees finally do the work themselves. And they come to him and ask him a question. And we see in verse 35, an expert in the law tested him with this question. And so they come again and again at Jesus, trying to break down his popularity because they fear him. They fear his popularity. The Herodians fear him. The Sadducees fear him. The Pharisees fear him. And they don't want to lose control of the people over to the Lord Jesus. But what is the result of all their attacks? Jesus becomes more and more successful. What happened with David? Every time Saul tried to attack him by sending him out to the Philistines, he just got more successful. And that's what we see. The crowds love Jesus. In verse 22, verse 30, uh, chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 33, what do we read? When the crowds heard this, the answer he gave particularly to the Sadducees, they were astonished at his teaching. They grow in their popularity for him. And what happens? Jesus then also has an opportunity to ask them a question, the religious leaders. They've started a debate with Jesus, and Jesus rises to their questions, and then he throws one back at them. And we see that in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And he puts this difficult question out to them about Psalm 110. And what do we read in verse 46? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Every attack they make upon the Lord Jesus fails. Fails miserably because Jesus actually becomes higher in the people's eyes rather than lower. And so what do they decide to do? Well, they decide we'll just put him to death. We'll get him at night when no one else is around. These crowds can't see what's going on. And we'll put him to death and we'll get the Romans to do it so that no one else can interfere, that the crowds can't interfere. But what happened? Well, like David, every attack that was made upon David, he continued to just gain support, gain more and more of the people's love. What happened to Jesus? They put him to death and he gained his greatest triumph ever. He paid for sin and rose again from the grave. And as a result... God's people loved Jesus even more. They loved him before he died. They saw the miracles he was doing. They saw the answers he gave. And they thought, this guy is a guy worth following. Look at him. And now 
after he rises from the dead? This guy, this man, is really our Messiah. This is the King of Israel. This is the one we want to serve. And so the religious leaders failed in their attempt to destroy Jesus. In fact, they led him to his greatest victory of all as he paid the penalty for sin and rose to life. So where are we in the passage, though? Where are we in 1 Samuel chapter 18? David is a shadow of Jesus. Who is your shadow back in 1 Samuel chapter 18? Are you Jonathan and Michal and the men and women of Israel and you love the Messiah? Or are you Saul? And Christ angers you. He galls you and you would like to destroy Jesus. You say, how is that possible? Well, in jealousy, we like to keep our thrones instead of giving them over to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What throne do you have? Well, we all start out on our little thrones in our lives. We're meant to have God on the throne of our life. He is meant to be Lord over our lives. But instead, we want ourselves to be Lord. We want ourselves to be king over our lives, to call the shots and to say what we should and shouldn't do. But what is the problem? We do a terrible job. We keep on making mistake after mistake. And we bring disastrous consequences upon us again and again and again. Are you happy with your life and all the decisions you've made in your life? Or will you admit that you have made mistakes and that a lot of the pain you bear in life is not the fault of others, although you'd like to say that, it's actually your own fault, that you've done a poor job of leading your life. And then what's the problem for us? Well, Jesus comes along and he shows that he is a greater ruler than we are. He never makes mistakes. He is perfect in all his judgments. And he has greater power than us. He has great power in battle. And as we see him, he can either be a problem for us or a Messiah, a saviour for us. We can be like Jonathan and love Jesus and covenant with Jesus and pass the mantle to him and say, please take over the leadership of my life and then rejoice in having this powerful person fight for us against sin and against death and against the judgment that we deserve and Satan and all his demons. Or we can be jealous of him like Saul and the religious leaders, and try to destroy him. Now, you may say, I'm not either. I don't love Jesus, and I don't really try to destroy him. I'm just neutral. Jesus warns you, he who is not with me is against me. He who is not with me is against me. And you see this with people. They say, oh, I'm neutral, I'm neutral. But you bring up Jesus with them. And they suddenly get their back up. I was at a gym class the other week and someone was at the, uh, I was talking to the personal trainer and talking about his, he'd been on a Buddhist retreat and I, I was talking about purity, we were having this conversation about purity and he was saying, oh yes, we're pure inside and then, and then we, we desire things that are impure. And I said, well, where does the desire for impurity come from? Isn't it that we're actually impure on the inside? The problem is within, not the things that are without? And another member who hasn't really participated in any such discussions, I didn't even know if she was listening in the class, piped up and said, that's your view. Precisely. 
It's not her view. And she wants it to remain my view. She doesn't want that view impressed upon her that she is somehow impure and that she may not be leading her life rightly and that she needs another leader over her life, the Lord Jesus. Is that you this morning? You say, oh, I'm neutral. No, you are not neutral. You are not neutral. He who is not with me is against me. Now, why is it bad to be like Saul and to reject Jesus? Well, eventually you will be destroyed by your rejection of Jesus. Life's biggest problem is rejecting Christ, despite what you may think about the other problems in your life, despite what you may think about viruses and illnesses and things of this world, your biggest problem is your rejection of the greatest ruler anyone can have over their life. Why is it such a big problem? Well, Jesus punishes those who reject him with eternity in hell. Eternity in hell. And fighting Jesus is futile. You may think, ah, yes, he threatens punishment, but I will fight it off. No, every time you attack Jesus, he just gets greater. We see that with David, the attacks that Saul made upon David, and we see it with the Lord Jesus. Every attack that was ever made upon the Lord Jesus just led him to increasing triumph. He defeated death. How do you go up against someone who defeats death? He just gets stronger. Christ's ascent to the throne is inevitable. And so we need to surrender to Christ and to love Jesus. But you may say, I love being king of my life way too much. How can I come to have Jesus on my throne? Well, study how weak you are and how strong Christ is and you'll love him. My criteria for someone who's a good artist, so if someone says that they're a painter or an illustrator and they can do fine art, my criteria for them as to whether they're good is a case of whether I could do that. So when I go to the art gallery and I go in the modern art section, which I don't tend to like, I like the classical section, but I, I sometimes take a peek in the modern art section, and if I see a piece of artwork there and I say, I could do that, I consider that artist to not be a good artist. If if your piece of art is a piece of glass with a great big rock dropped onto it so it shatters, I could do that and sell it to the art gallery. And so then my opinion, my opinion, is that that person is not a good artist. But if I look at a piece of art and I say, there's no way I could do that. I know what I can do. Some of you know what I can do by the way that you've seen me illustrate for kids clubs, what I can do when it comes to art. It's pretty basic. It's good enough, it gets the point across, but it's pretty basic. If I look at a piece of art and I say, I can't do that, I love is stirred in my heart for the artist and for their artwork. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus. If we understand how hopeless we are, but how powerful he is, we can't help but love him. That's what we see again and again in the pages of the Bible. That's what we see with the Israelites. Why did they love David? Because they recognized how helpless they were. They were for 40 days. This giant was coming out and threatening them, and no one was able to do anything. Then this little boy goes out and kills him, and they go, this guy is a guy worth following. We couldn't do it. We'll follow this guy. And it's the same for us with Jesus. We say, look at what he can do. Of course I will follow him. We see this again and again in the Bible. Even David himself recognized his helplessness and the strength of God. And therefore, God was his saviour. 
God was David's saviour. And a classic text on this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 22. If you're still in 1 Samuel, flip with me over to the next book, one, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, page 319. Page 319, 2 Samuel chapter 22. In verse 1 it says, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this is a classic text in showing the weakness of David but also the strength of God. Look with me at verse 5. David says... The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. This is a man who knows his helplessness. And he cries out to God. And how is God pictured in this text? Look with me at verse 8. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky... Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies. Bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. If you see Jesus in that light and you see yourself the way David saw himself, you can't help but love the Lord Jesus. If you study the Lord's triumph at the cross, what it means that he atoned for sin. You can't help but love him. You'll say, I can't beat that. So I want him on my side. What's that old saying? If you can't beat him, join him. And that that applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't beat him. So what's the best thing you can do? Join him. Join him before he comes knocking at your door and you realise that you are one of his enemies. If you realise how powerful the Lord Jesus is and how wretched you are in your sin and helpless and hopeless you are, then you can't help but love him. You will sing, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, but Christ his billions... You will sing his praises because he has helped you. You will sing that song, that song that was written so many years ago by Featherstone, that hymn that I love dearly. It says in the second verse, I love thee, speaking to Jesus, I love thee because, 
Why do I love Jesus? I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Why did Featherstone love Jesus? Because Jesus won a great victory for him at the cross on Calvary's tree. By wearing the thorns on his brow, he triumphed with Jesus. And that will be you if you understand how powerful Jesus is and how wretched you are and in need of Jesus' help. And then when you understand that he has saved you, he has helped you. So do you love Jesus this morning? Or do you hate him and despise him as Saul did so many years ago? There are only two options when it comes to Jesus. Are you going to keep opposing Jesus, which only ever makes him stronger because he wins every battle that he ever engages with any person on this planet? Even death gave him a great victory. Are you going to keep opposing him? Or are you going to admit your helplessness in ruling your life and learn of Christ's power? The only reason you will reject Jesus if you just underestimate who he is and how powerful he is. Learn of his great power and admit your helplessness and then willingly give your royal robes over to him. If you are an unbeliever, then you are still wearing your own royal robes. You think you're king of your life. You're a good leader, you think, but you're not. You fail again and again. Take a good, hard look at yourself and how you have sinned again and again and brought pain upon your life. Give Jesus your royal robes and your weapons by repentance and faith. Say sorry to Jesus and trust that he died for you so many years ago. And then what you do, rejoice in being one of Christ's subjects. If you belong to Jesus, you are one of the safest people on the planet. You join this great group of people who are the safest people on the planet. You're one of them because you recognised, I couldn't beat him, so I joined him. He is too powerful too wonderful for me to reject as a ruler. And he made that offer that I could have him as my ruler and he would look after me in this life and for eternity. And so, of course, I chose him and I now rejoice in the fact that I'm safe in the king's arms. Let's come to God now. Let's speak with him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come and we praise you as the perfect ruler. You are righteous, you are almighty. We ask that you would forgive us for preferring to make ourselves the rulers of our own lives. Help us to see more of our weaknesses and to see more of your strength and so love you rather than be jealous of you for being on our throne. And help us to say, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Amen.